What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 45. We're going to do 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is one of our favorite movies of all time. It used to be the background of my wall, and it's just such a legendary, iconic film, not only just in the sci-fi genre, but in the entirety of cinema in general. Yeah, this movie came out nine years before Star Wars, and it had the same visuals, and so you could see Kubrick had the genius aesthetic and and vision to create uh, a science fiction film that was accurate to what it could possibly be like and what it would look like. And uh, the, what he did with this film was uh, revolutionary and groundbreaking, and it changed cinema forever. And it came out three months before the first moon landing with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in the United States. So it had that peak curiosity of not just Americans, but the entire world of space travel and what's is there life beyond the universe? Is there in, in the universe, is there life beyond Earth? And, intelligent life. Yeah, and, and Kubrick and his team also accurately predicted technologies that we have nowadays and i'm sure there are technologies in this film that we haven't achieved yet but seem very much likely to happen in the future this episode of raiders of the lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at manscaped.com get 20 percent off your order and free shipping using coupon code raiders of the lost at checkout again raiders of the lost at checkout for 20 percent off and free shipping just in time for the holiday season this episode is also sponsored by movieposters.com Use coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order for movieposters.com today. Again, RAIDERS15 to get 15% off. If you like our podcast and our content, the best thing you can do to support us is subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, wherever you listen, you can find us. Leaving those five-star reviews is super helpful, especially those written ones. We love to read them. We read every single one, so thank you for all the kind words and messages. We also have a Patreon now where you can support us monthly, where members get special perks, personalized messages, personalized videos, and top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. And we're putting that Patreon money to great use to improve the podcast, improve our set, and make everything a lot better. 2001 A Space Odyssey was released on May 12th, 1968. Written and directed by Stanley Kubrick and co-written by Arthur C. Clarke. The film stars Care Dolia, Gary Lockwood, William Sylvester, Douglas Ryan, Daniel Richter, and Leonard Rossiter. The film grossed $71 million on a budget of $12 million. When Dr. Dave Bowman and other astronauts are sent on a mysterious mission, their ship's computer system, HAL, begins to display increasingly strange behavior, leading to a tense showdown between man and machine that results in a mind-bending trek through space and time. 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's not just genius on every single level of filmmaking, but it's hypnotic. Kubrick didn't make films to entertain us, he made films to give us experiences and to make us think. His films have multiple layers that require several viewings to even pick up and unpack every single one of them. So every time I, I watch a Kubrick movie, I'm always trying to analyze as much as possible. But the first time I saw this, I'm pretty sure you showed me this when, I, when we were like 15, 16 years old. In that, on the Netflix queue. Yeah, on the Netflix. When DVDs. They, yeah, when they sent DVDs to us in, per, on per, in person and you had like the, the max where it was like three four, at a time. Yeah, three or four at a time. Yeah. And you showed me 2001 Space Odyssey. And I remember watching it for the first time back then and it absolutely blew my mind. I've probably seen it a dozen times since and it's... It's my favorite Kubrick film, and it's one of my favorite space travel films of all time. 2001 was, is such an extravagant piece of filmmaking and, and production design, cinematography. The score is great, uh, and visually, it's absolutely stunning. But I think one of the strengths of the film is the mystery, uh, because Kubrick purposely uh, leaves so many questions unanswered, puts out so many ideas and questions that it, it allows you to watch it repeatedly and get a new experience every time you see it. And even still to this day, I'll watch it and I'll still either take away something new or 
ask a new question or realize that he was maybe maybe he was trying to say this right here. And, and it's just a film that uh, no matter how many times you see it, you always get something new from it. Yeah, there's he's always got multiple themes going on. Obviously, 2001, the main purpose of the film is to question our existence and where we come from why are we special why did humankind evolve if we were if we did evolve or we were were created um it answers in in a scientific way in kubrick's way uh questions of evolution it also pits man versus machine at some points and again overall that that theme of where do we come from and where is our place in the universe and why were we chosen if we were chosen to to have evolved on this rock that's Floating in space, going 100,000 miles per hour, circling a star. Why us? I also think an, another major theme in this movie is intelligence and the idea of intelligence and how what separates us from the other animals on this planet. Why are we uh, the ones who are conscious, the ones who are intelligent, who can who can think critically and, and perceive things in an analytical way? Uh, there are other animals that have bigger brains than us. It doesn't have to do with the size of the brain of the animal. Uh, we are... Uh, unique among everything else on this planet and i think kubrick is really questioning what the idea of intelligence is and where did intelligence come from because we weren't always intelligent it happened at a certain point and it happened gradually it wasn't like one day we could speak but there there were small baby steps that led from uh, obviously the early humans learning how to make tools and and fire and, and hunting and and working together and building communities and it led to eventually the pinnacle of humankind, which is uh, the the dream of chasing artificial intelligence. This episode of Rares of the Lost podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. They send us every single product. They sell basically their briefs, their t-shirts, their deodorizers, cologne, um, shaving cream, uh, their lawnmower trimmer, which is insane. It's it's the best clippers I've ever used. I've been using the store brand clippers my entire life, and I don't know what I was doing, pulling hairs out for no, for unnecessary reasons. The lawnmower has a light, and it's waterproof. You can use it in the shower. Manscaped's the perfect place to get gifts for the men in your life, whether you got brothers, cousins, boyfriend, husband, father, uncle, friends, grandfather. Everyone's going to appreciate something from <laughs> manscaped.com. I'm telling you, this is stuff that guys would actually use. I swear for the rest of my life, I'll probably use nothing but Manscaped trimmers and buzzers. Definitely use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Again, it's the holiday season. Get this done. You got to start getting presents. Do it right now. Raiders <laughs> of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. And in the terms of consciousness, I, I do think that scientists and biologists believe that. I think dolphins, they say, are the only other conscious being on Earth, possibly squids, two, all, two very intelligent animals, uh, dolphins, specifically mammals. So obviously we can't officially know that ever at this we point. We can't communicate Yeah, we can't them. communicate yeah. with them. So, But obviously we're special on this planet. If, if we say that those animals aren't conscious, and then I, I had roommates in college that used to love that show Ancient Aliens. I don't know if you've ever yeah, watched you it. Oh, you've made me watch and it. And so it's, it's, fun, it's fun to watch just because how silly it is, but also it's a lot of people have this thirst of there's these theories of did aliens come and infuse alien DNA to force evolution on these ape species or or specific animals that were on the planet Earth, which is obviously in terms of like what we're talking about maybe with the monolith, but also that mystery of of civilization in general like the mystery of the pyramids like how did those happen we still don't we can't figure out how that how those were created there are questions that people want to know want to know the answers to and they're fascinated by and i think 
there are two ways to explain these questions. You have either have religion or you have science. So there are people that, that follow religion and they use their, their faith in their religion, whatever it is, to explain the, uh, the, the miracles of the world and of humanity. And then there are the people who want to use science to explain it, and they, they want to figure out where, what the facts is, are and what the evidence is to try and determine how things happen and, and how things came to be scientifically. And I think uh, Kubrick kind of explores a little bit of both in this film, mostly uh, scientific, though. And when we when we constantly will be saying Kubrick's name a, a bunch throughout this episode, obviously, because he directed it, but Arthur Clarke was the author of the book of this of this story and so whenever we say Kubrick we're also saying Clark because they developed the book and the screenplay at the same time together so when we're talking mm-hmm. about we're basically talking about both of these men in terms of like the writing process and the themes and stories obviously the book and the film are different but it was an unusual situation where they developed both at the same time they were both released around the same time too yeah because what happened was uh, it was a, a short story that Clark had written called the Sentinel that Kubrick really liked and then he wrote to Clark and asked if he would be interested in working on a, a film about the, the short story and adapting it into a screenplay so uh, as they were working on the screenplay Clark was writing the novelization full full length novel as well so you're right they both were pretty much written at the same time which I don't think has ever happened before in terms of a major film yeah so I want to make sure both writers get credit yeah. but in terms of the filmmaking that's all Kubrick mm-hmm. and Kubrick also did extensive research in quantum mechanics and space travel and theory and, and all the science that is put into the film he actually learned everything for it which is a, a testament to the the mind that guy had on him yeah and similar to how obviously we've heard where kip thorne was um aided with chris nolan for interstellar so interstellar uh helped had him help develop the science behind the mm-hmm. script and the black hole and everything like that in relativity stanley kubrick got help from carl sagan on many of the scientific elements of this film, specifically about alien intelligence and uh, life outside of Earth, intelligent life outside of Earth, because 2001: Space Odyssey, on the surface, on the surface, it might always, not always look like it, but it's a, an alien movie. It's about aliens, mm-hmm. but Kubrick doesn't show aliens; he suggests aliens. He never shows these beings. He describes them as like beings of pure energy and spirit. That's the way he describes them in his own words. I think it's, it's like different dimension of beings. Yeah, exactly. So similar to Interstellar where yeah. you can't really see what's going on with your point of view as being a human being or an ape. So again, this is this is the suggestion of aliens. And Carl Sagan, he, he argued that the probability of us being able to understand another intelligent life form that would be this intelligent to travel through time and space or intergalactic travel and see us they're probably a different dimension or or we wouldn't be able to perceive them really yeah because the only way to travel across the universe uh is through dimensions not through space and so you'd have to be an interdimensional being in order to proper in order to actually go from where you are to planet earth which is across the universe it's the only possible way you can't travel there through the means of even the speed of light is is horribly slow to do what you want to do, so you have to travel interdimensionally, and we're we're not beings that are uh, are uh, within that dimension that can do that. So we would never be able to understand uh, what they are. It's the same thing as trying to be two dimensional in a three dimensional world. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our coupon code Raiders15 to get fifteen percent off your order today. They sent us all these fantastic posters that are now decorating our set. These are high quality. They look great. Movieposters.com is the number one site to get your movie posters online. The holiday season is here. The best gift you can get your movie lover in your life is a poster. 
MoviePosters.com offers countless poster designs and sizes for pretty much every film imaginable. They also offer framing, backlighting, and canvas. Don't buy your posters on Amazon. MoviePosters.com is the only place to get high-quality posters for a great price. Use our coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your purchase today. Again, RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your purchase today. And something that really blows my mind about this film is it's it has so many mixed reviews and I think it's 66 on Rotten Tomatoes. Really? Yeah, it's, oh it's pretty God. low. And even though it's now regarded as one of the best films ever, and most Kubrick fans or film fans put that at the top of their list of Kubrick's filmography. And I think this film, its biggest strength, obviously, besides the ideas and the themes, is the practicality of the filmmaking, which makes it timeless, and it doesn't feel dated at all. You can watch this today. It looks like it was made 10 years ago. It looks fantastic because, again, so much practical filmmaking – and I love the way he he shot this. He he opts for so many wide shots and long long takes of wide shots to show off these amazing sets and these this production design and he, to make you feel like you're actually in this universe in this world. And he holds these shots, these wide shots that are sometimes not very flattering for the humans in the in the shots, but they they really just accentuate the sets that he's helped build. He's always shot that way with these very wide shots. He he uses close ups, but very rarely. And for an important reason you'll see a close-up in a Kubrick film, but otherwise most of his films are medium-wides and wides, and and he does that to transport you into the film, and they're long takes, like we said earlier about Alfonso Cuaron with, with Children of Men, with the long takes, to because the longer you go without editing, the more realistic the moment feels for, for, the, for the audience, and it transports them into the scene, it makes them feel like they're there with the, with the characters, and with this film, that, that happens... And especially because he doesn't use music as well during the the intense uh, com- um, scenes of conflict, and it feels like you're there with the astronauts during these moments. And it's just a brilliant way to depict this. It's not stylized, and I would say the reason why it got such mixed reviews was because before this film, uh, space movies and sci-fi movies for the most part were were monster movies, and they were just very fantastical and and ridiculous and flash gordon yeah flash gordon stuff like that and it was just pulpy and so uh, science fiction and space were never depicted in an accurate and uh, serious way and so that was his goal with this film and he did that perfectly and obviously because it still holds up and it still looks better than most of the stuff you see nowadays with cgi and that's the reason why people didn't accept it because they didn't understand it they didn't realize that what he was doing was accurate to what it would really look and feel and, and be like in space. Well, because, again, we hadn't even landed on the moon yet, yeah. and so people are still like thought there were aliens on the moon. They didn't know until we actually went. And one of the most impressive things about this film, I think, is that there isn't a single line or word of dialogue for the first 25 minutes of the film or the last 23 minutes of the film. And in total, 88 minutes of this film have no dialogue. In a way, it's, That's amazing. it's very much a silent film. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And for me, every time I view this, I think Kubrick's trying to create a subjective experience because he clearly wants you to think the entire time. He wants an emotive response from you 
at different points in the film, but especially the last 15, 20 minutes of the film, he wants you to take the entire experience you've had so far and try to work out what you think it means or what questions it's going to make you ask. Yeah, and he's not telling you the story. He's showing you the story, and it's your interpretation of it, and you're taking in the information, which is images and editing, and he uses just the bare bones of filmmaking with uh, minimal dialogue to tell his story, and it's a, a fantastic way to do it. And I think that this film is so iconic in so many ways, it, it will always be regarded as one of the greatest ever. Yeah, his confidence as an artist, as a director, it's amazing in this movie because just to go back to the wide shots, there isn't even a medium shot or a close-up of, an, of a human for 30 minutes into the film, which is with the doctor who's sitting on those pink chairs during that little mm-hmm. um, drink little meeting. And that's the first time we get like a decent shot of a person, which is crazy because this is a film. Mm-hmm. And when you watch a movie, you're expecting to see a lot of human interaction. And... um that's really quickly replaced with more wide shots of the sets and, and again, unflattering images of people to just show off the set and see what's going on and to make you feel like you're in those rooms with them. Yeah, and in terms of technology, I think that Kubrick was so so brilliant in his team with the way they predicted technology for the future where in this film, they have characters literally using iPad, tablets, and they're also using video messaging. And so Kubrick accurately predicted that we would be using video messaging and, and things like iPads. And also they're using vertical screens, which is something we're very used to now is watching video content on a vertical screen rather than rather than a horizontal screen. And I think that, uh, I, I don't think people really understood what he was doing. And he had, somehow he knew that it would be a way that people would want to take in content in the future. And obviously he was right. I mean, most people who have found us have found our vertical videos on TikTok, yeah. which is insane. Exactly. And Kubrick, he's so ambitious because he's telling the story of the evolution of humanity from a primitive ape creature that inhabited the earth for a million years ago to modern humans, then to an advanced star child of the near future while exploring humanity's place in the universe, as well as artificial intelligence and interdimensional time travel. So he put so many intense ideas in one film, in one project, and you can't help but think that I don't think a single filmmaker could have pulled this off besides Stanley Kubrick. It's mind-numbing, and it's just it blows you away to consider that he made this in the late '60s. It's absolutely astounding. Right off the bat, Stanley Kubrick opens this film with possibly the greatest opening title sequence ever made, where you have the planet, moon, and sun lined up perfectly with that iconic music, which has become synonymous with space or with something amazing happening. It's popular culture. When you hear the song, it's 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 uh, referencing this moment in this movie. And I think that this is such a strong way to open a film. And I don't think anyone's ever done a better title sequence. And before that, there's um, just a, a black screen for about a minute and a half with a very eerie song. And I, I know a lot of people like to interpret it this. Maybe it's the creation of the universe in terms of the story. Maybe it's, it's some other darker, deeper meaning. But this is really uh, a very practical overture. To before a film was shown. It's like a prologue. Yeah, so basically this is what happened at a lot of films in This is like, it's what you would happen in an opera. Yeah, so basically it's, it's basically playing well to set the mood for the film, and usually curtains would be drawn and up, so you wouldn't even see the black screen. So 
I know it's fun to interpret now when you watch it like on a on a VOD service. Like uh, if you rent it on Amazon, it's a minute and a half of black with this very eerie sound. But again, it's the same thing with uh, the Hateful Eight with the overture of that. So mm-hmm. it's basically just to set the mood for the film. But you, it's fun to interpret it. I like to interpret it myself, even though I don't have to, because that's just part of film and that's part of art. And sometimes in my head, I'm like, maybe maybe this for me is the creation of the universe before the dawn of man, which is the first chapter of the film. But again, it's just a practical effect in a movie theater and a cinema. This film is pretty much a, a series of, of long chapters. There aren't that many scenes, actually, in this film. It's not, And it's not a very complex plot. And the first major chapter is the dawn of mankind. And the music, obviously, is iconic in the entire film, especially the opening song. And although he did have original music composed by composer Alex North, who I think he did Spartacus, too, for Kubrick, he ended, Kubrick ended up scrapping all of it in opting for several 19th and 20th century composers, including uh, Richard Strauss, Johann Strauss, no relation, Gregory Leggetti, and Aram Kakarchurian. And according to Kubrick, after editing the film, he and Alex went through the film meticulously with temporary music Kubrick had placed in. However, North composed music that was entirely what Kubrick said alien to what they had discussed in terms of what he wanted for the film. So Kubrick cut it, and North first learned that Kubrick cut his entire score at the New York City premiere of the film and was obviously devastated when he found out. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty messed up. Obviously, Kubrick is a, is a very controlling person, but he actually never wanted him to compose the music. He never wanted North, and the studio forced him to hire North as part of the deal to make the music for the film. So he was kind of forced into the situation of having North compose the music, so he never wanted it to happen in the first place. So you then can actually you can understand. find it. Yeah. And then North actually used a lot of the themes he created in, in films he worked on in the future, so he, he ended up using this music for films. You can find the full album. I think it's on Spotify, too, and you can tell listening to it that like it, w- it would not have transcended 2001 to the way that the rest of the music did. Yeah. And then the first chapter of this of this film is the the sequence uh, for uh, telling the story of the dawn of mankind, and obviously told through the point of view of these primates who are they're not actually apes or, or monkeys they're actually very early humans and so these are the the I would say the very first humans who ever gained intelligence and he depicts that in the story and it might be the first ones that you know were pretty much close to walking upright and basically tells the story of power. In between these two tribes of apes where one tribe of these apes, if you want to call them tribes, has control over a watering hole. Where the other tribe of apes wants to get some of the water, but obviously they can't because the other apes have control over it. And this is where, you know, we're talking about species that fear each other. They don't want violence. And it's obviously that alpha mentality where the, each group has, there's a hierarchical structure and there's a leader of each group. And obviously the ones that have the watering hole, they have the power and they have the control and they they make the other apes fear to not take the watering hole. Yeah, that's 100% right. And I also actually want to add that there's another major theme in the sequence and that's intelligence. And intelligence plays a major part in this story. And so... The, the, the first group of primates, the ones that we follow, they're obviously the victims of the po- more, more powerful group who end up taking over the watering hole from them. And we learn that the primates are victims to this group, and they're also victims to predators. For example, that, that big cat, was it a jaguar? A leopard. A leopard kills one of the apes early in the film, so we learn that they are hunted, and they are not on the top of the food chain right now at this moment in time. And there's even that great sequence, it's a little scene where all of the primates are huddled together at nighttime and they can hear the growling and roaring of, of the leopard. And you can see the fear in their eyes and in their faces that they're terrified 
of this predator that has been tormenting them for who knows who knows how long. So this group of primates, they they have no power in their in their uh, world. Yeah, and so they fail to take the watering hole or even get gain access to it from the other tribe controlling it. And then again, they fall asleep, but then they wake up mysteriously to this large black monolith object oh. in front of them. And again, Kubrick, we're like 15 minutes in, still no dialogue, no human mm. beings, and it's just this eerie music now. And these apes or these primates or these early homo sapiens, whatever you want to call them, are obviously at first terrified of this structure and obviously don't know what it is because clearly they're not in super intelligent, so they don't understand that it's alien. They don't understand what alien means or what it came from but they understand i think they understand that it's not of the world that they know they don't recognize it yeah the shape of it is is too perfect and it doesn't belong in the natural world so they obviously uh pointed out as something unnatural and they're very scared of it and obviously they're screaming and and it's so interesting because they slowly one of them touches it and then more of them touch it and then they're all running their hands along the grooves of this of this monolith and this is the first time we see a monolith in this film, we see four total, and this leads to sort of a eureka moment for this ape species. It leads to obviously a fear at first, but curiosity, which leads to these apes kind of figuring things out and problem solving. It's not so much that they figure things out. So what happens is when the monolith is touched by sunlight, it happens every time in this fo- in this film. When the monolith is hit by sunlight, it basically like turns on and just how later in the film it, it emits that high pitched frequency signal. I think that in the scene when the monolith is hit by sunlight, it is emitting another signal, which is literally per, um, putting intelligence into the minds of these apes. It's cr- like literally creating the simplest form of intelligence for these uh, primates. I see it a little differently. I see obviously it's uh, the catalyst for the intelligence and obviously to when they figure out tools. Um, I see it more that these apes are sparked by curiosity because the next shots are are where that Moonwatcher ape is playing with the bones. He's kind of digging for food, and he's just bashing the bone around and figuring out what what can I do? Can I use this for something? Because I think Kubrick cuts to the monolith while he's thinking with that bone, and I think maybe because he's so curious about that bone of of the monolith, and he remembers the monolith that curiosity is beating out fear and curiosity is sparking this inspiration for him in this eureka moment to imagine like where did that come from what can i do with can i do something with this i would say the monolith by sending out a signal to them gave them the ability to think and to think critically and the ability to work out what the bone can do which is why this group learns how to use the bone as opposed to the other group not learning to use the bone i don't don't think it's so much a curiosity where the monolith was put there by aliens to provide the the bare bones, like an Easter egg nugget of intelligence and the ability to think. And it, these aliens put it there so that they could literally help this species evolve into intelligent life. And so this is the very first step of intelligence. Exactly. We're saying the same thing, but just in different ways, where I'm saying that the curiosity is the internal catalyst, where you're saying that the monolith is actually giving intelligence. Yeah. They're I, both, in a way, yeah. giving intelligence. I think it's just more of a spark of because one group of apes is given that monolith and one's not, and look at what's happened. Yeah. I'm, and I say it, it, it's literally a signal is being put into their brains to give them the ability to think. Well, that's cool because this is art and we can both yeah. think different yeah, things, yeah, but yeah. we're on the same same answer yeah, yeah. towards yeah. the end. Yeah. And obviously, 
uh, Moon Watcher Monkey playing with the bones. He figures out he's smashing skulls, and they they learn to kill these animals that they've been like sharing ground with, and obviously they become meat eaters now, which a lot of uh, scientists and biologists believe is a reason why intelligence was grew so exponentially in these early homo sapiens your brain actually uh, needs fat more fat than anything else so the best thing you can provide your brain when you eat is fats and you get a lot of fat from meat Mm -hmm. and obviously they use these weapons and tools that they've made from bones or using these bones and they take over the watering hole and now not only do they get intelligence and they have curiosity they're no longer afraid and they have power now of the watering hole and those other apes they're probably going to die out and this is like the new start of the evolution of mankind so in a in a very simple way they have kind of evolved uh, in terms of the other group this group has evolved and now they can think so they are the more advanced form of the species now and so they're on the step towards progressing to becoming humankind why do you think that the monolith was put there i think obviously the monolith is I think that if you want to talk about all four stages of the monolith, the first one I think is the catalyst to spark curiosity and intelligence and to help kickstart the evolution of the most intelligent life that this alien species has found in our solar system and our galaxy. And so they're probably, obviously, long term, the monolith represents uh, this alien species introducing humans to this intergalactic community in a sense. Yeah, I would say maybe this alien species is is putting monoliths all over the universe for any kind of species that has the ability to ever uh, evolve into an intelligent species. I agree. And you can also question maybe the alien species is the is the same has evolved from these primates and so they're literally beginning the chain right here. But they're they're the they're the descendants of these primates. Very interstellar theme right there. Yeah. So they it's a cycle. So there's a couple of ways to look it's at possible. it. And again, there yeah. are no really wrong answers to a Stanley Kubrick film, especially this one. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's in the shape of of that three dimensional uh, rectangle? Um, I think well, obviously, Kubrick. One of the reasons he he made it that shape is because it's the exact uh, dimensions of seventy millimeter film horizontally Mm. um also i think he wanted to create something that looked so alien to any being that had mild intelligence especially these apes obviously they're rubbing their hands along this smooth black it's probably to them in the film metallic even though it's wood with paint i'm sure to them it's it's this uh, this substance they've never touched before and so smooth and perfect edges and and in in corners so yeah i think just having right angles and uh, sharp edges and it being such an unnatural shape in in nature i think is why they went with that shape and it would spoke spark the curiosity and in, in more intelligent human life too like mm-hmm. it does later on in the film so i think any kind of being that's not of like another dimension in terms of intelligence would be peaked curiosity wise from it and also i think um like obviously you could also think maybe they went with they could have gone with the sphere but i think there's something impo- like intimidating about this monolith being this tall strong structure as opposed to like an orb or a sphere, which is a little softer and maybe less imposing. There's something about the monolith that is kind of scary. To to me, if it's a sphere, it seems like it could be organic or, mm-hmm. or naturally occurring almost. Just like a planet, obviously, where, where spheres, yeah. which is created from surface tension. So obviously a sphere happens all over the, the world in the universe. Mm-hmm. So maybe obviously having perfect like, straight lines, perfect right angles, it's obviously been made. I think they chose this shape for the monolith because... 
it's the shape of a doorway. So the monolith is a doorway for intelligence. It's a doorway for evolution. It's a doorway to find alien life. And so these apes went over that watering hole. And we have one of the best shots and cuts of the film where the moon watcher is... He throws the bone up in the air, and this is, I think, the only shot that was actually filmed not in the studio. It was filmed in the exterior where the bone's flailing through the air, and then Kubrick directly cuts to—so this weapon is floating through the air. This bone cuts to a new weapon, a thermal nuclear vessel uh, ship in the middle of space two million or four million years later mm-hmm. down the evolution of humans to where we are at present day in terms of when the film was made. This is probably the most famous cut in, in cinema history. Throughout all of cinema, this is probably the number one cut because it's an amazing juxtaposition of the very first form of a weapon to the most advanced weaponry uh, that humans could ever achieve. And it's a, a brilliant cut. And Kubrick actually, he they, they filmed it outside, but it was literally like right outside the studio. And he filmed it himself. He literally threw the bone up and he had a small camera and he filmed it. And it's... Uh, a common misconception, like you said, it's a thermonuclear warhead, but most people think it's a spaceship. So it's actually, like you said, a weapon. So he's literally cutting from the very first weapon to the final weapon of humankind. And before we go on a little further, I just want to go back to like the filmmaking of the Dawn of Man a little bit. And mm-hmm. these beautiful wide shots, which again, were all done interiors. And these these backdrops were actual projection projected images off of a two-way mirror onto a massive screen behind the actors and behind the sets using um, a screen that's very similar to a movie theater screen. And so it's actual real images being projected with a two-way mirror. And also anytime you see a small screen, like for example, the video messaging scene or or the, the, the tablet scene or any kind of like screen on a spaceship, they're doing the exact same thing. It's literally a film being projected, a film reel being projected on set onto that small uh, surface, whether it be the tablet or, or the the video screen. So uh, there's no actual video in this movie. It's all projected film on top of uh, a white layer, which is the same thing as like when you see a movie projected, but they just make the frame tiny in the shot. So it's all in camera, and it's it's a very like a lot of this film. It seems to be, it was so revolutionary, but everything is very, very simple. How you get these effects, it's just literally like magic tricks and, and simple trickery to, to create these images. Yeah, a lot of these things were already developed too and being used for for the decade before too, but you know, Stanley just put it to a new level with this film. And also, the, all the apes, all the actors were mimes, and hmm. Kubrick was auditioning all sorts of artists, dancers, actors, comedians to, to potentially play the part of these, these ape beings, and he eventually hired the actor and mime Daniel Richter, who was a mime in London at the time, a professional mime, and he was then given command over all these other mimes, and and they spent hours and hours at zoos studying apes and monkeys, and (laughs) they ended up doing a fantastic job because even though when we watch it today, the, the probably the most dated part of the film is obviously the makeup and design of the monkeys, which yeah, still especially holds, their faces still holds yeah. up. But you know, obviously this was made in 1968. But um, at the time, it's not like Planet of the Apes with any circus. Yeah, yeah. at the time, um, people thought they were real monkeys and real apes, and that's why it never won uh, best an Oscar for nominated. best best makeup or anything. The people in the Oscar voters thought they were real monkeys. Yeah. But Stanley wisely put in two baby chimpanzees as children in the primate group to make it add that realism that, like, it it helps us accept that the adult primates are real by having the little baby real chimpanzees in the shots. So I think it was very smart of him to put those little babies in it. And so we cut to four million years later, and 
space travel has become commercialized. It's become a very normal thing to do. Uh, and several major brands that uh, we recognize from America have gotten into the space um, commercialization in terms of, for example, the spaceship that Floyd is flying in is a Pan Am spaceship. Obviously, Pan Am went under, and but it, at the time, it was the biggest airline in the world, especially in America. And also, the space station is a Hilton space station, as in Hilton Hotels. So Kubrick wisely understood that whenever space travel and exploration uh, becomes a commercialized, a commercialized business, then major companies and corporations are going to get involved in that. And I think that um, it was depicted really well in Ad Astra, the film that came out last year with Brad Pitt, where you have things like Del Taco and, and stores that we recognize on the moon base. And uh, Kubrick uh, first did that with this film. And he also, I think, geniusly puts us in this world of space and zero gravity and what it would feel like or look like very simply and very practically. We just have the shot of of, of the doctor asleep at his in his chair by himself on the spaceship and his arm is floating like it's in zero gravity. And then we have just a shot of a pen floating around. And this perfectly, without intense practical effects or wire rigs or anything like that, shows us that we're in a zero gravity environment. And obviously the flight attendant with her grip shoes looking like she can't really walk. And the floating pen, I think, is such a fun effect because it used, a, a at the time, brand new technology, double stick tape on a piece of glass. And that's how they floated this this pen to make it look like it was actually floating around. Yeah, they literally put the pen on a big sheet of glass and they just moved it around to make it look like it was floating. It's so simple. It's just a little magic trick. It's and, just three little things for your yeah. brain to realize, oh, there's no gravity in the spacecraft when it's just a set. Yeah. And they don't explain it in the movie, but the, the stewardesses have uh, Velcro shoes and that's why... They don't float away because of the Velcro. Well, her shoe says grip shoes yeah, on it. Yeah, but it's actually, it's Velcro. Yeah. that's They just didn't put it in the film. They had it originally. And then um, some of the most famous shots in the movie are in this sequence, especially with the stewardess walking on the walls and ceiling. And uh, this is obviously a mind-blowing effect, especially when you saw it for the first time in 1968 or 69. And obviously no one had ever done anything like this. And again, it's a very simple effect where uh, the set... Um, itself is rotating and so the camera is mounted and then the set that the actress is in that's rotating so that's what's providing the uh, that's what's making it seem as though she is walking on the ceiling when in fact she's still right side up and the camera is upside down at the moment and this was obviously famously used uh, in inception with the famous hallway scene where that scene they've built this entire hallway on a, a rotational device that spun around and and they captured that the same way Kubrick did this. Yeah, we'll talk about that even more when we get to the Discovery One spacecraft mm -hmm. later on with Hal and Frank and Dave. But just to stay on this uh, sequence where this doctor is traveling to the space station, he's a little unawares of all the situations going on, but he's there to report on this mystery on the moon. And again, we have these massive sets. And one of my favorite sets in the entire film is when he's meeting those other doctors for that quick drink to say hi and chat for a little bit. And yeah, it's like, like the lobby of the space station, yeah, I would and, say. Yeah, it's like those those funky pink chairs. And <laughs> it's the only thing he got wrong. <laughs> it's a huge set. It's enormous. You can look at it, and, it's, and you can see the... The circular um, shape of the floor is like this large ramp to show that this is a circular vessel. What I was talking about earlier, these massive, these wide shots just to show you the set more than the people. Mm. And then again, we get that first kind of medium close up of a doc of that uh, Russian doctor, I think, talking. Mm. And then if you look at the set, you'll recognize the lights on the ceiling and floor. You'll see that again later on at the end of the film. 
and we'll get to that when we get to it. He's meeting with these people he knows, and they're going back to Earth, and he's traveling to Clavius. We learn that there's something strange going on in Clavius, and no one's been able to get into contact with anyone on the moon base there for 10 days, and no one's been able to even land there. And um, these people are very curious, and uh, obviously we don't know what Floyd does exactly, but they seem to know that Floyd seems to be a guy who, who who's pretty important. And when he's pressed, when he's asked about Clavius, he kind of plays dumb and doesn't really, he says he doesn't really, he hasn't heard anything about Clavius and this is all kind of like news to him. But then when the, the Russian doctor presses him a little bit more, Floyd's cho- tone changes completely and then he tells them repeatedly he's not at liberty to discuss any details about the situation. So clearly Floyd knows a lot more than these people have have uh, been asking him about and he's clearly hiding something yeah and before we get a little further into what's going on we have this this cute little scene uh with a video phone yeah, call it's very cute which is very fun and it shows again facetime right here he's facetiming with his daughter yep. which obviously vertical it, screen it looks great because it's shot with film but yeah. obviously also the camera follows the girl around <laughs> yeah but again this is this is future technology that kubrick's basically pretending i'm not saying he's the only person in film or or science fiction or anything to ever predict this but again showing it on a massive scale in a hollywood big, big budget film in 1968 it blows my mind that he knew that we would be using vertical screens to communicate it's just it's incredible like, yeah let's not forget about star trek we know how important star trek is guys yeah yeah you know, someone that's gonna be. <laughs> We're the first Enterprise. <laughs> and so the other scientists, they have heard this rumor that there's some kind of viral epidemic that's taken over Clavius, the moon base, and they're worried about this uh, viral outbreak spreading to other bases and other planets. And so um, we learn that some kind of catastrophe seems to have been happening. But actually, in fact, the pandemic and the epidemic—it's all a cover, which we find out when Floyd gives that debriefing to the other more important scientists and employees of the space station or or part of the government. We learn that there's been some sort of discovery on the moon and that obviously these people know what's going on, but they're not happy that they have to keep going on with this ridiculous cover story because I'm sure they probably can't leave their moon base. They're probably stuck where they are. They're getting a lot of questions. And yeah, I'm sure yeah. they want to be able to talk about it. But but Floyd's trying to explain to them that they have to properly um, prepare the public and properly prepare the world for what's about to happen because something like this, uh, an alien discovery, could blow people's minds and cause mayhem back home on Earth. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, it's one of my favorite sequences is when Floyd and the other astronauts and scientists uh, travel to the dig site. We get that ominous vocal choir score, which slowly rises throughout the scene. And it's just, it's a very intense scene. And it's, uh, it fills you with anxiety when they, they walk onto the moon and uh, we see this dig site. And then the same exact kind of monolith that those primates found four million years ago on Earth is sitting within the dig site and has been uh, excavated and there's no one else there. Uh, it begs the question, what happened to the people that did dig it up? And so Floyd has been tasked with investigating this monolith. So we have this really ominous image of this dark gray moon, but then there's this dug up ramp with all these fluorescent lights is glowing on this monolith. And it's the monolith that we saw in the first chapter of the film with the dawn of mankind. And this is the second time we see a monolith, whether it's the same monolith or not. I think they're just different ones, but this is the second time we see it. And it's kind of interesting because Kubrick multiple times will juxtapose images of previous scenes with newer versions of those scenes with 
different evolved creatures. So we have the way the apes approach the monolith in the beginning. And then now we have these scientists in, in modern humans, how they approach to it. And they're much more reserved. And still we wait for one man or woman of the group to touch the monolith first. And it's I think it's Dr. Floyd's the first one to touch it. Mm. And then the rest are, are more, uh, they feel more safe around it. And it's just an interesting way to show how they approach it in contrast to the apes until there's that incredibly loud uh, tone that's coming from the monolith that's piercing their ears. Their and, ears. And again, like I said earlier about the um, idea of the sun, is that first what we see is the sunlight touching the monolith. We see the sun peaking just above the top of the monolith, and then the signal begins peering out. So it seems as though uh, this monolith turns on whenever sunlight touches it, which means that uh, these aliens um, dug this monolith here uh, knowing that eventually humankind would uh, develop the resources and intelligence and ability to travel to this moon. And that means, and if they were able to make it to this point, then they were ready to uh, further advance their species and evolve. Yeah, so if we're keeping track of our monoliths, the first <laughs> monolith is used as a form of curiosity to spark intelligence and create the catalyst for the evolution of these eight beings into modern humans and then this uh, monolith on this moon this was a test this buried for four million years purposely buried which they say for four million years waiting for humans to develop the technology and evolve enough to travel there to find it and then this monolith is pointing them directly in the direction of jupiter this radio frequency saying go there and so now, just to, just like how I was talking about the original monolith piqued that curiosity to create intelligence in my view of those ape species, now this monolith on the moon, which was buried there 4 million years ago, waiting for human beings to space travel and land on the moon and find this monolith in this crater, in the Clavius crater, it's now piquing their curiosity even more because it's, again, purposely buried there for 4 million years and pointing in the direction of Jupiter, which is now going to be the next chapter in the film. And so it seems as though these aliens have a plan for humankind, and they are involved in purposely leading them on this breadcrumb trail, and we don't know where they're gonna lead, where it's going to lead towards, yeah, so where this, it's going to lead to. Yeah, so again, the first one's a curiosity intelligence kind of monolith, and this one's a test. And, and also a signal. And more curiosity. Yeah. And this is going to, is this also, uh, the, this monolith ends up being basically a map telling the humans where to go. And obviously, we've talked about miniatures on this podcast, but this could probably be the, the best example of miniatures and miniature sets used in film and history. And Kubrick and his team assembled amazing structures and incredibly believable spaceships, uh, often made out of wood and fiberglass and metal. And they absolutely look f fantastic even to this day. They still hold up. And they were actually using motion control cameras and rigs to capture the, the same shot over and over again so they could replicate it with different angles or different adjustments here and there. And this was actually used in Star Wars A New Hope several years later, uh, specifically the attack on the on the uh, Death Star. So a lot of technologies being made and kind of perfected on this set that helped lead to a lot of the filmmaking of films like Star Wars. Without a doubt, there would be no Star Wars without 2001 A Space Odyssey. Definitely one of the major influences on that project for sure. And actually, just another example of that, of the projection that Kubrick used in terms of the background images too, that's almost never used, but it actually 
has been used recently in the film Oblivion and the way that Krasinski <laughs> and the way that Kozinski shot that was uh, with with modern projections of these massive canvases and uh, screens. So it's not really used too often anymore, but they actually did use it in Oblivion. Nolan did it in um, Interstellar. So the actors on set in the spaceship of Interstellar, they weren't looking at the set or a green screen outside of the windows. They were looking at actual projections that Nolan had designed, which accurately depicted whatever the scene um, detailed. So whatever the characters in the story would be looking at, whether it was a black hole or another planet or a star, that's what the actors on set would see with the projections on the screens ahead of them. Same thing whenever he gripped a camera to the side of the spaceship, there was actual projection of screens. That's what you were looking at, not not green screen CGI. Yeah, so none of that was done with CGI. He's a practical filmmaker. You still, it's, It still looks great. And that's why it still holds up today to, with 2001 yeah. Space Odyssey. You know my favorite um, example of projection screen? Uh, in in history is no idea. So in the Matrix, uh, after Neo has been unplugged and he's brought back to see the Oracle, so he's back in the Matrix for the first time again, and then he's sitting in the car with Morpheus and Trinity, and he's talking with Trinity, and he's he's looking outside at the city, and he's saying, "Oh, I used to get noodles, that good noodles there," and he's kind of a, a, at disbelief and amazed that he used to live in this artificial world. In order to make it feel like it wasn't real, the Wachowskis didn't film this in the city and they didn't film this with green screen. What they did was they put two uh, canvases on either side of the car and they projected uh, previously filmed footage of the streets of New York City and they projected it onto the canvases. So what Neo is looking at is actually a projected image on purpose because it kind of looks fake, but it kind of looks real. So it adds to that, that context of him being in an artificial world that looks super believable. So it's a fantastic effect they used on purpose for that exact reason. Not to make it look better, but to make it kind of feel artificial. And now we're on to the next chapter of the film, which is the Jupiter mission 18 months later. And now we're at the Discovery 1 spacecraft, which is, you know, this is the next step after discovering the monolith on the Earth's moon, which was projecting those radio frequencies towards Jupiter. Now they're following that trail of breadcrumbs to see where it's leading to because, again, curiosity, and we're trying to figure out what are these monoliths, what, what, what are these things. And also curiously, uh, the, the two lead astronauts on this mission who are awake are, are Poole and Bowman, and we learn that there are three other astronauts who have been in cryogenic sleep since before the mission ever took off, and and this mission has been shrouded in mystery and mystery and. And it, it seems as though Bowman and Poole, they don't even know what the mission is. They just know that they're on this ship and they're heading in this area. But it seems like the three astronauts who are asleep are the ones who actually know what's going on. And that's why they were put to sleep before the ship took off. That way, they wouldn't reveal any information to these two astronauts right here uh, who are still awake. We're also introduced to another character as well, who is Hal. And Hal is an artificial intelligent computer who basically controls all the operations of the ship and helps assist Frank and Dave and eventually when the other astronauts wake up on their mission to Jupiter. And Hal is an interesting aspect to throw into this story because obviously we talk about the main themes of this film are evolution and curiosity and intelligent life and, and alien life. And, and, and now we're throwing a new kind of mini-story of man versus machine and we have this is the 1960s again and technology is getting advanced and artificial intelligence is something that people were scared of and obviously still today are scared of and 
it's just a, such a fun character with Hal, and he's the supercomputer of the 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 HAL nine thousand series, which they have a great little interview with him on with a news anchor on TV, and he talks about how uh, the HAL nine thousand series computers are incapable of error. Um, no computer of his model has ever made a mistake. He calls himself conscience, and he's also very prideful and confident in his abilities and in how advanced he is. And when they ask the astronauts if he has real emotions, they say that he acts like he has real emotions. But they also give a great answer where they can no one can truly answer that mm-hmm. if he has real emotions or not. Yeah, and I don't think it's an accident to see that Hal's system is actually shaped exactly like the monolith. It's a rectangle with his little glass eye with the light in it, but it's a it's a rectangle housing. And I think that Kubrick did that on, pur- on purpose because it alludes to the fact that uh, humankind has pretty much created their own monolith, this, their own uh, form of the uh, ultimate level of intelligence, artificial intelligence, and and so Hal represents um, humankind's monolith. Yeah, so they're attempting, or humans are attempting, to create their own form of life and to, in a way, like the monoliths, act like a god or act like gods. Because I think Kubrick also throughout this film and with the use of the alien life and and the monoliths is is he is he's talking about God, whether it be a scientific god or a religious god. And obviously, we're talking about beings that we can't perceive or humans can't perceive or possibly understand or even begin to comprehend the intelligence of. Um, that, to them, is a god. And again, to make life for human beings that makes them gods or try to be gods, and obviously, it has dire consequences. Yeah, and if you think about it, an AI is the ultimate pinnacle of intelligence, and humankind can never achieve that same level. But they the big, can only create yeah. it. But the biggest problem with making an AI and with HAL is it's created by humans, and human beings are very flawed individuals, as we see throughout the film. Because go back to the apes, obviously these ape beings are not humans, but they still act with a lot of the same emotions that we have today, mm-hmm. and still in this modern humanity that we're living we in. We still share instincts with them. Yeah, we they act. They opt for violence. They opt for death and killing and, and power, whereas. They do the same thing in, in this chapter, too, where, you know, obviously you've seen this movie, but they opt to uh, destroy Hal or, or shut Hal down or you could say kill Hal after he begins to after he has his first error. So they instead of trying to understand something, they immediately try to destroy it. I think it's out of definitely out of fear because uh, they can't control an A.I. So they can't control Hal. Hal has become Hal is independent as an artificial intelligence. And so when Hal makes an error. Uh, it, it alludes to the idea that uh, you can't trust Hal going forward anymore because if he made an error predicting the failing of an antenna that never happened, then you can't trust any other information he gives you. So uh, there are, the, Frank and Dave are correct in, in deciding to, to unplug Hal and leave just his automated system running for the ship, but otherwise eliminating Hal, the intelligence, from the, from the ship itself. And let's just backtrack a little bit because I want to talk about Discovery 1, specifically the practical effects that Kubrick used to make this amazing sequence of being on this the spacecraft. In Discovery 1, we have those great sets of this giant wheel, basically. We have this great set of this giant wheel, which is where the living quarters, you could say, of these astronauts. And um, Kubrick had a giant centrifuge designed by British airplane manufacturer, Vickers Armstrong, which measured 
36 feet in diameter. It cost $750,000. And this was the living chamber again of the astronauts. And think of it, you could call it like a Ferris wheel or, or even more accurately, it's like a giant hamster wheel where <laughs> the, he has those shots of them running. And what they would have to do is this is actually spinning with these actors on set. So they had to actually time all their marks perfectly. Otherwise, they would be apt to falling down because it's, it's spinning. Yeah. And so it's, again, it's the same kind of concept as the spinning hallway that Nolan did in Inception. And even reminds me and you a lot of that old InSync video. Yeah, that InSync video yeah. is great. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like it's, for the actors, the floor is constantly changing and they're, they're constantly uh, moving forward to stay on the floor itself whereas the set is rotating but the floor is always below them which gives the impression that they're on a ship that is rotating and the rotating ship if obviously if you don't know this which they explain or they don't explain they, don't it, they explain show it. in interstellar it's it's to create gravity in a area with no gravity by by spinning i think to 1g so you create the illusion of or the feel of gravity yeah so if you've ever been to a carnival and you've been on that uh I, they have different names spacetron or megatron spacetron or gravitron was yeah. the one we were, went on and and it's this ride, it's this big cylinder, um, and you go inside of it, and it starts, and you put your back against some some mat, and everyone's standing against this mat, and then the ride starts spinning incredibly fast, and then you slowly rise off the ground, and then your 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 entire body ends up being planted to the to this the wall. It's not the floor. And you could literally it's, stand. Yeah, you could sideways. stand up on this wall sideways because the the spinning creates its own gravity within the ship itself it yeah. doesn't create gravity but it, it creates the the effects of gravity like centrifugal force yeah, basically. exactly so that's why this ship spins that's why you'll see the ship in interstellar spinning it's to create gravity also the martian does this so that the astronauts don't have to live in zero g they can live in in with normal gravity and interact and stand up and walk around and so we have these fun interactions that are really interesting to watch between the astronauts dave and frank and hal and um, one of my favorite ones is the chess game that Hal has with, I think it's Dave. Mm -hmm. And I think if you watch it, it's kind of, kind of interesting the way that it seems like Hal maybe, maybe, uh, lied himself and kind of may have lost the chess match, but he kind of makes Dave think that he's, he missed a move in that, oh, Dave, you missed it. So it was this, this, that, and that. Maybe if you watch it again, I know every time I watch it, I'm always trying to pick up on was Hal lying because he's a super smart computer with no fault. Obviously, Dave's going to be like, oh, you know what? I think you're right. I must have missed it. And so he concedes the game. I think they had this moment because it shows the advanced intelligence of Hal to be able to predict uh, Dave's moves in the future. And so that shows how intelligent the computer is to be know, able to yeah. predict someone else's I know that, moves. but also it's fun to think, was he yeah. actually being honest or there? Or was Hal, is this a form of Hal not being a perfect machine, which we find out later, and he's maybe lying? Hey, Hal is an ominous figure. That's why we have the red light on the set today to match that that red light of Hal, exactly if you're watching on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and then another odd situation happens with Frank where Hal is talking about how he has concern about the mission because of all the... There's a lot of secret elements about the mission and what happened on the moon... And how there's a lot of security. Yeah, and I think Hal's kind of going through an emotional dilemma because his obviously coding and writing is to assist these astronauts on every way that they need help on the mission, but also he's supposed to withhold information from them for a specific amount of time mm -hmm. and then also help them at the same time. So how is he supposed to do those things at, together? I think that this is actually exactly why Hal has a malfunction because he has the information about what the mission is, but he's, he's, he has to keep it from Frank and Dave. And so 
this contradiction within his coding is what causes like some kind of synapsis where he he makes an error because of the instructions he was giving which contradicted each other yeah and so Hal tells them or tells Dave that there's going to be a failure of an antenna within 72 hours on the exterior of the ship and obviously Dave and Frank are concerned and so uh, Dave goes out to try to fix the antenna and brings it back in and what they realize is there's nothing wrong with it and Hal made a mistake and Hal calculates that that can't be possible and that it, there must be some sort of other error or human error. And then even when they contact uh, their base, they say that Hal made a mistake, which is highly unusual. Because, because they have an identical Hal 9000 that said there wouldn't be an error. And so, like you talked about earlier, Dave and Frank are now skeptical about Hal's performance and his uh, reliability for the rest of the mission. And so they need to try to talk about what to do next, but they try to do it in a secret way away from Hal. And they obviously effectively what they think get away from Hal and his microphones and so they can't so that Hal can't hear them inside one of the space pods yeah and so they they enter the space pod and they disconnect it from the ship so that Hal can't hear them or see them uh, from within the pod and and they have this private conversation they think is private about what they should do and they end up coming to the conclusion that their plan is to put the antenna back and if it doesn't fail then the next step would be to unplug Hal's intelligence from the com- from the computer and from the ship where they would keep his uh, automa- automated operations running, but he- the intelligence of Hal would be disconnected. And the eerie thing about this is they don't realize that Hal can see in through the window of the pod and he's reading their lips and Kubrick captures this in like the most terrifying shots of the film yeah. are Hal reading their lips and it's just these close-ups and it's very eerie. I think it's so brilliant how Kubrick films Hal's point of view several times in the film with the fisheye lens and obviously that's the way that's the the lens that's that he that's his eye that that's how he sees it with this like fisheye uh, altered warped image of the world and i think it's so eerie and and strange and kind of disturbing yeah and so frank goes out to put the antenna back but now how you could say turns bad and becomes mm-hmm. a villain and he decides that he has to kill the crew and this is such a fun concept to talk about with man versus machine. And why does Hal have to kill the crew? Why does he start killing the crew? So he, so he kills obviously Frank outside by using the the pod and pushing him out into into the abyss, the, the abyss of space where Dave sees him flying uh, outside and goes, great and goes to catch him. But at the same time, while he's while Dave's doing that to try to save Frank, Hal kills all of the other astronauts that are hibernating and. Basically, Hal's doing this because he's he's being faced with the prospect of termination, and he decides to kill these astronauts in order to protect and continue his programmed uh, activities and programmed directives, you could say. And with the crew dead, Hal reasons that you know he could continue the mission, and he wouldn't even have to lie to them. Because I think it's the fact that he has to lie is what causes some sort of emotional crisis, whether yeah. Hal has actual consciousness and feelings. It creates some sort of emotional crisis, mental breakdown, or a synapsis or an error in his coding to to at first project predict that falsehood of the antenna failing. Yeah, and you could say that he kills the astronauts out of the the preservation of the mission, but I think that Hal they allude to the idea that Hal does have a real consciousness because I think he kills the astronauts out of his own self-preservation like you just mentioned because it's also shown later when when Dave begins unplugging his circuits that that Hal, it's this really uh, kind of a sad scene of Hal's death when 
he's begging for his life and he's saying that uh, he was wrong and he, he'll, he'll change his behavior and he won't do it again and, and he understands what he did, did wrong and then he starts begging him and then he starts saying that he's afraid. He's afraid of dying. Then he starts saying that he feels pain. And so I think that Hal saying that he feels pain and, and that he's afraid, it shows a great sign of, of consciousness within him. And it's also just very eerie and disturbing because Hal is speaking with that same monotonous tone and it's not an emotional. Uh, it's not emotional. The the dialogue, and I think it's that's what makes it feel more realistic that the it's a really a computer because it's not getting emotional. And Dave manages to go out and catch Frank and tries to bring him back in, but obviously Hal won't open the pod bay doors. We have the iconic back and forth dialogue of Hal, open the pod bay doors, please. I can't do that, Dave. And then we have like the the most ghosting sentence ever. And Hal's like, "This conversation cannot continue because it, it's it has no more meaning." So he just leaves. And then um, that's how you break up with an ex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave decides to go in through the emergency exit. I think in the in the other side of the ship. He so so Dave first uh, he manually opens the emergency airlock on the ship, and then he rotates the the pod he's in. So that the back of the pod is facing the now open airlock and then he uses the explosive bolts on the pod doors. He blows them up and so and then the force of the oxygen being pulled out of the pod uh, pulls Dave also out of the pod in the direction of the airlock which he uh, successfully enters. Yeah, this is similar to that film Sunshine except that was like 100 meters and yeah. that was pretty intense. Yeah. But this was probably a lot more realistic. Kubrick was worried because no one had ever... Space exploration was still very new, and he wasn't exactly sure what would happen if someone uh, went out in space without a helmet on, and he wasn't sure if, if they would survive. So uh, he originally wanted the scene, he wanted Dave to um, fly further through space, but he wasn't sure if humans could uh, withstand that in the openness of space being exposed, and so... That's why he changed it to the, the pod being so close to the airlock. Yeah, and actually he would have been right because it would have been fine because human beings, you're more, you're going to suffocate before you die of, of hypothermia or freezing to death in yeah. space. Because it is very cold in space, but there's no matter, so you will suffocate before yeah. anything. Yeah, you, you can't breathe. So. Like, you won't freeze like you're not Your face isn't going to explode. Like, there's some, there's some crazy things that people do in movies, but for the most part, you're yeah. just going to suffocate. That's what you're going to do. Exactly. And so... Dave makes it inside, and now he's on a mission. Now he has to shut down Hal, and we have this very intense sequence of he's in this red spacesuit with the green helmet now and those green gloves, and this is an iconic. It's, it's an iconic sequence where he goes into Hal's mainframe, and you were talking about it earlier. He's now floating inside basically Hal's brain and shutting him down. And as you talked about, Hal set, he starts to beg and plead and says that he starts to lie too, and he's like, "Oh, I feel much better now. I understand what's yeah, going on." Yeah, he's literally lying. And you know, as he's being, as his memory is being wiped and, and taken out, he's he's starting to be more childlike in a way with that robotic voice, and he sings that that song Daisy in that eerie robotic deep tone. Yeah, it's, Daisy. It's, and uh, I believe they chose that because it was the first song ever sung by a computer. Oh wow! And um, it's a, a very intense scene, an emotional scene, because even though Hal turned into a villain, you could say. Um, you still, you know, had a little empathy for him because he was a conscious being. If you, if I think he was a conscious being, and that's why he was acting out in such a, such a destructive way. I think that the the mission having him lie, which caused the computer error, I think is what created consciousness. I think so too. Just like the curiosity in my argument of the monolith huh. to the eight people. Yeah, pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. pretty cool. 
All you need is a little spark, man. It's all you need is to see something. And that's the difference between human beings and monkeys somewhere else. Who knows? And then after he completely uh, erases the memory or pulls out all the memory of how Floyd comes onto that projection and we learn, or Dave learns, that an alien object or an artifact was found on the moon and that that's his mission because Dave and Frank didn't know what their mission really was. They just knew where they were going. And now they know that, now he knows that the mission is to follow the trail of this alien structure. And they, at this moment, they've, the ship has reached its destination and, and Dave finds, he's, when he looks out, he sees that there is a gigantic monolith orbiting around Jupiter. And so he gets into a pod to, to investigate it. And again, curiosity. And now we're at the third monolith of the film. And again, peaking curiosity still of human beings now. Now, despite everything that Dave just went through, he's got to continue his mission, and he's even more curious now than ever. And with this moment, it's the most uh, famous part of the film is when Dave is pulled into this vortex of of light and, and matter and dimensional travel. It's You can come up with so many descriptions of what it is, and it's just an absolutely stunning sequence. Yeah, it's about 10 minutes, 9.5 minutes of the psychedelics uh, sequence the Stargate sequence. I think that's what a lot of yep, people Stargate. call it. And um, again, if we're gonna keep track of our model list again, the first one is curiosity, intelligence, the spark of evolution. The second one is a test, and this third one seems to be a portal mm-hmm. of interdimensional time travel through space. Um, They're bringing him somewhere. Yeah, the the monolith is taking him somewhere, and they filmed this in a really interesting way. It's called slit scan, where they would move the camera with an open aperture. Uh, of full exposure forwards and backwards on a platform towards this black surface um, that had a four foot slit in it and behind that black wall surface they would illuminate different types of art gels and colored gels that would move uh, very minutely while they're going in and out and it creates this incredible long exposure shot of basically infinite colors and exposures and it's really this is all practical filmmaking which is absolutely sensational yeah. and, and mind-blowing because the first time i saw this i'm like wow they had computer graphic imaging that <laughs> that advanced back then that's no, incredible yeah. but this is practical filmmaking and aside from those effects the other two major effects they use in the sequence are uh, they dropped uh they uh drop droplets of dye into water and use uh, colorized lenses and filters to film those and so if you look there are several uh, images where it's actually like uh, wa- colored droplets spreading through water and then also they shot um, a lot of landscapes with uh, helicopter shots and Kubrick actually uh, shot most of these landscapes when he made the film uh, Dr. Strangelove and so he took the same footage he used in that he shot some more footage and then uh, they they shot they uh, filtered it with colorized filters and um, that's why you'll see like it'll be like a river or a lake or mountains and the colors are very extreme and saturated and usually two tones of colors that are generally on opposite sides of the color wheel and it's just an extravagant like visual feast but it's actually just literally landscapes on earth and i think that he did this not to trick us to make it look like it's something that it's not i think that he purposely wanted to use landscapes because it's something that is familiar to dave being from earth and i think that this is a, a new dimensional way of looking at what he uh, remembers and so it's like looking at our our planet through a new dimension lens. And obviously this is not easy to watch for the average filmmaker. Again, it's nine and a half minutes of this. And I recommend never not watching the entire thing because what he's trying to do is again, evoke emotion from you and 
He's trying to give you a subjective experience. He's trying to, maybe you do get annoyed by it. Maybe you get pissed off. Maybe you're a little bored, but he's trying to make you feel something while you're watching the sequence to try to set you up for the ending of the film, which gets even more confusing. And this Stargate sequence is actually why the film became a success because initially this film performed poorly at the box office. It wasn't doing very well. It was like doing okay, but it wasn't any running runaway success and, and even the the studio itself was contemplating pulling the film from screens because it wasn't doing well and then theater owners convinced the the production company to to let it sit in in theaters for for a few more weeks because they were noticing that young people kept coming to see this movie and they were all high and what happened was word of mouth spread among teenagers and other young people where there's this very trippy psychedelic scene at the end of this film and if you took psychedelics while you were watching the scene, it made you trip out in an amazing way. And so all these psychedelic loving, like hippie young people would take psychedelic drugs like mushrooms or, or something. And then they would watch 2001 just for this Stargate sequence. And so because of that, ticket sales were boosted and the film became a huge hit. And then we have the highly contemplated ending where Dave in his pod just appear in this kind of living quarters. It's, it's like a home. Yeah, we've actually visited um, a, a pop-up of this set, mm-hmm. which was super cool to actually walk through. We went to, the, they did the exact replica of the set and yeah. just walked around. The bedroom part yeah, of it. the bedroom. is so mm-hmm. eerie to, and cool. And we have these illuminated floors and um, the decor is, is 18th century French decor, which is, Neoclassical. During the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is a philosophical movement that dominated Europe in the 18th century. And it centered around the idea that reason is the primary source of authority and legitimacy and advocated such ideals as liberty, progress, tolerance, fraternity, constitutional government, and separation of church and state. So the Enlightenment, I think, plays a major fact in this sequence because for me, a lot of what's going on with Dave, and I guess you could say he represents the entire human species— is an enlightenment period which leads to our next form of evolution that's a, that's a great point and also within the set so you have this neoclassical design and architecture and you have artwork and you also have the floors and ceilings which are like the space station where they're all lights and it's very uh, futuristic contemporary lighting and i think kubrick did it on purpose because i think if he was just within a normal if the entire set looked like it was 18th century with like normal floors and and lamps it kind of wouldn't have felt like it was anywhere in a different dimension. And Kubrick understood the importance of juxtaposition, like we talked about juxtaposition of the bone to the to the nuclear weapon. He's again juxtapositioning this 18th century architecture with futuristic lighting in architecture. And he's putting it in one image so that we know it's... I think that it's a way of the aliens created this space for for Dave to to live the rest of his life in. He I think they planned for him he's going to live out the rest of his days in this space and they wanted to give him something that would feel familiar and that he would recognize so they gave him this this uh design of a of, of a a home that to, that was a, a real pl- kind of place in on earth. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the aliens and this these species or this this alien entity having Dave live out the rest of his life in this this space. And Kubrick geniusly makes it seem like a timeless passing of his life where it just is moments when he goes from his middle age to 
an older state and then uh, on his deathbed towards the end of the, the sequence in the film. Exactly. It seems as though time blends together in this environment and Dave himself can't even keep track of time because the way they progress the sequence is first he's in a suit and then he sees an old man eating dinner and ends up being an older version of Dave and then now we're in that older version of Dave's point of view and he's looking where the astronaut Dave was and the room's empty so it was him like 20 years ago but now he's not there because now he's eating dinner and then when he goes back to the table and he looks and he sees yet an older version of himself on his deathbed and then again we cut to that very old Dave's point of view where he's on the verge of death. Yeah, so why would these aliens put Dave, who represents humanity, in this living quarters and in this room, wherever you want to call it? Are they using it to observe him, to study him, to understand him, to try to test him? Um, I think, again, going back to the Enlightenment, I think it's Dave reaching a sense of Enlightenment, which allows the next step of evolution to take place because right before he's on his deathbed and right before the next and final monolith appear, he's eating dinner and he drops that wine glass and the wine glass breaks and he stares at the wine glass and he kind of, I think comes to some sort of conclusion in his mind of maybe the understanding of life or understanding the next step in life or the next step of evolution. Because again, maybe that glass represents the human human race becoming extinct, but Whatever was in it is is going to live on, whether it was wine or water yeah, or what. I interpret it as they didn't put him there to learn anything. They put him there just to, to live out his days rather than I don't think they wanted to kill him. And so they gave him like a place to live his life until he reached his death. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of, yeah, I, th I could see that too. But also I think they wanted him to reach that enlightenment because I think that's the whole point of what he's surrounded by. I would say the enlightenment comes right after this. Yeah, well, so then we have the shot of him in his deathbed, and the monolith appears, and we have that iconic image that um, Kubrick got, and it's an imitation of Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam, which is in the Sistine Chapel, where Adam reaches his hand towards God's hand. And this is obviously what Dave does as an old dying man in bed. He reaches his arm out and is pointing towards the monolith. And then we cut back to the bed, and... Uh, Dave's not there anymore, but instead there is a, a baby fetus floating within this orb of light. And this is the star child. And the way I interpret this is that this is Dave reincarnated by the alien race. And they have officially uh, caused him to evolve into a new kind of human species, a new advanced human species, which will be hyper-intelligent and which will advance the human uh, civilization to higher grounds, um, intelligence-wise and uh, space discovery-wise. And so I think that um, the alien uh, species created this new version, this new species of an evolved form of humans. Yeah, and for me, I agree 100%. And also, we have the star child is traveling towards Earth, and the last shot of the film is it orbiting Earth, basically looking at the planet. And for me, it's also, this is just part of the story. This is just another chapter in the evolution of life from Earth, achieving the goal of becoming this interdimensional being. I think that the aliens sent the new Dave back to Earth, and they're sending him back to Earth to, he's going to carry out the, ver the beginning stages of the evolution of humankind. And so he's going to, I guess, when he, as he grows older, he's going to help the species evolve through probably pro procreation and, 
and spreading of himself. And so this is the the first ad, the first step towards advancing the species. And again, in terms of God and science and religion, this is maybe a scientific take on what a lot of religions tell us. And we're talking specifically about Jesus Christ, you know, in terms of Christianity and Catholicism, of Jesus coming down to earth, being the Son of God and being God, God himself, and spreading that religion and the word of God in terms of that faith. And so this is maybe a scientific interpretation of that. Great point. Really good point. Thanks, pal. And um, I think ultimately this story is about, if you get down to it, I think it it's about the evolution of mankind and how the evolution of mankind could be carried out and how, do, how would humans evolve. And I think that uh, Kubrick is saying that the, the best chance of human evolution is through the, the help of uh, an advanced uh, alien species. Yeah, again, I think Kubrick is and Clark were just fascinated with questions of life and meaning and, and purpose and why us, again, why human beings, why us on this planet Earth are we experiencing life? Why are we experiencing consciousness? Why are we special? Where do we come from? Is our identity in terms of our, our DNA and our, our coding and our, our life obviously grounded in earth but are our spirits um cosmic and celestial because we all are made from stardust so are do we have this deep connection with the energies of the universe yeah exactly. are, we, are we both the being of earth of this planet and also of the cosmos yeah and and how when what is intelligence how do you define intelligence and how do you explain intelligence and consciousness and where does it come from and how did we achieve it and so uh, kubrick explored so many deep intense themes about our world and ourselves in in such a, a powerful way and i don't think any science fiction film has ever been able to to proper to, ever been able to tackle these questions in such a profound way as this film yeah i think interstellar got pretty close in terms of questioning our existence and where we come from although that is more about just us being ourselves the next step of evolution again mm. but I love 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's one of my favorite films. It's my favorite Kubrick film. And every time I watch it, like you said earlier, it just takes something new away, new questions. And and I see something in a new light. And it's so fun and interesting. And, and that's just the themes of the film, not even t- talking about the filmmaking or practical effects, which are astounding for the time. Yeah, this is uh, hands down one of the greatest films ever made and ever will be made. And Kubrick uh, set the stage for his illustrious career with this film and this was his I think his first iconic film and it will be regarded as one of the greats and that's it for episode 45 on 2001 a space odyssey please subscribe to our youtube channel if you haven't already follow us and hit notification bells on all platforms including spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts. support us on patreon if you haven't thank you so much for tuning in and listening take care everyone